friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. you to rise up from your seats, and we're going to read from James chapter 3 and verses 13 to 18. And at the count of three, we will read it together aloud, please. One, two, three. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed, the fruit, is righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. Shall we bow our heads right now? Our Heavenly Father, we just thank You for Your refreshing presence in our midst, O God. Even from the very beginning, Lord, from the word of exhortation to the worship songs and then to the song of Alessandra, we have encountered You already in a very special and very sweet way, O God. And we thank You because You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. You are the God who surrounds us. You are the God who who moves around us, Lord, and takes care of us. And we are blessed, Lord, to have You as our God because You are the only one and only true living God. And we thank You that You chose us to become Your sons and Your daughters. And Lord, we pray this morning that the Spirit of God will prevail in our midst, O God, opening our minds and opening our hearts. I pray that You might go beyond my weaknesses as well, O God, that I might be able to deliver Your Word in power, in boldness, and Father, with the conviction of Your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you will accomplish all of the good purposes that you intended for today and for this sermon. And Lord, we desire that whatever is achieved, it will be to the end of your glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. This is the final installment of a short series that we began last uh, weekend, actually before uh, Pastor Joseph Joe preached to us. And so the title is, Who is Wise? And if you recall, just to refresh your memory, when we were asking this question, I said that I suspect that a lot of people would have a ready answer to the question, Who is Wise? And perhaps to a lot of people, it must have something to do with their intelligence quotient. However, if you take a look at the passage that we will be studying, it has actually nothing to do with our intelligence quotient. 
In fact, the Bible deals with something which is a lot nobler, and this is what James calls as wisdom. Now, just to refresh your memory, let's uh, show once again on the screen what we had previously discussed and what we will be discussing this morning. We talked about the question and the answer in verse 13. So again, the question is, who is wise? And then James supplies an immediate answer to us so that we do not have to speculate. And then we go to point number two. Actually, this passage has only two main points. And here in verses 14 to 18, we discussed a little bit about the wise and the unwise. And under that, we have two subpoints. First, the marks of the unwise. We talked about the internal root, which is a wrong heart. And then we talked about the inner disposition. And again, we will amplify that a little bit more later on. Then we talked about external sources. And what we meant here are the rebel forces, the world, our sinful nature, and then, of course, aside from the world and our sinful nature, demonic forces. And then there is a result of unwise conduct. There are consequences for being unwise. But our focus this morning would be the marks of the wise man in verses 17 to 18. And we're going to talk about the source, which is both internal and external. We're also going to talk about the inner disposition, just like what we did above. And then finally, we will talk about the positive result of wise conduct. But I'd like to refresh your memory in regard to what we discussed in the first sub-point, the marks of the unwise person. And first of all, again, let's point out the question and the answer again, just to provide context. The question is, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. The one who is wise, according to James, and has understanding is not the man who has the greatest amount of information. We're not talking about knowledge here. Rather, the one who is truly wise and who has understanding is the man who has good behavior as well as a good attitude. And this is specifically shown in the gentleness of his wisdom. Now, the question we propounded last time around is, why should such a man be blessed? Why should such a man be considered wise and not the one who is the one who is most informed? And the answer is, it is the one, it is not the one, rather, who has the most information who shall be blessed, but it is the one who obeys God. And so, very important for us to consider right off the bat that if you and I want to be blessed of God, the only way you and I can be blessed is not only to imbibe the wisdom of God, not only to align ourselves with Scriptures, but to obey the will of God as stated in the Bible. Therein, you and I would receive tremendous blessing in our lives. Now, we also talked about the description of both the wise and the unwise, and we talked about the marks of the unwise person. 
we dealt with the internal root, which is the wrong heart. And I keep on saying this. A lot of times we attack the behavior and the conduct of people, and we want them to change externally. But you see, brothers and sisters, it is much like just simply cutting the branches. What we really need to do is get at the root of the problem. If we want true and lasting and radical changes taking place, not only in our individual lives, but in the church and in the country as well, we have got to start, first of all, with the heart. That's where we need to begin. Because this is where all wrong conduct begins. And what is contained in a wrong heart? Well, James tells us about two things. I'm sure there are more, but in so far as James is concerned, he wanted to highlight two uh, things that are wrong in the heart. First, he talks about bitter jealousy, and then secondly, he talks about selfish ambition. So if you have selfish ambition, and if you have bitter jealousy, then you know that there is something wrong in your heart. Those things need to be removed. Now, there is an inner disposition which causes all of these things. And that's why I'd like to read once again verse 14. It says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So we're talking about two inner dispositions here. First of all, arrogance, or what you might want to call pride. Some people have this, and sadly, people don't discern it in themselves. They might be able to discern it in other people. They might say, well, this person is proud, he's arrogant, he's boastful. But when it comes to us, sometimes we fail to recognize it. But you know, if you and I are going to change and walk wisely, then we have to do some self-examination and try to see, is there pride in us? And at, uh, at the heart of all of these is really a desire for autonomy from God. That's what happened in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. That is what happened in the case of Lucifer. There was a desire to be autonomous from God. Now, the moment you do that, you want to become a definer of good and evil. Now, absolutely, that's absolutely wrong because how could we be the definer of good and evil when we are not the creator? God, the creator, is the one who is supposed to define good and evil to us. And us, being created beings, should be submissive and humble enough to align ourselves with the will of God. We have to say to God, Lord, you are all-wise and all-knowing, and there is nothing that is hidden before you. You understand everything about us. You understand everything about the universe. So, Lord, humble my heart that I might submit myself to you because you know, Lord, what is best. You know what is wise. Arrogance, however, is not willing to submit to the will of God. There is a desire to become like God. Isn't that what happened with Adam and Eve? Isn't that what happened with uh, Lucifer as well? 
You know, I, I like this quotation that I got from Rabbi Zacharias in his book, Jesus Among Secular Gods. And I, I'm not sure if this is already out in the market. This was actually a gift that was given to me by Pastor Jonathan Mortiz when he came from the United States, and they did the Transformed in Christ conference. And I started to read the book, and just the first two chapters was actually very, very powerful. But in the first chapter alone, what Ravi Zacharias does is he describes the arrogance that is found in the human heart that seeks to rebel against God. So allow me to just read a portion of a personal story that he had when he encountered an atheist. And the story goes something like this. It was years ago when I was speaking at an openly and avowedly atheistic institution that I was fascinated by a questioner who asked, what on earth did I mean by the term God? The city was Moscow. The setting was the Lenin Military Academy. And the atmosphere was tense. Never had I been asked before to define the term God in a public gathering. And because I was in a country so historically entrenched in atheism, I suspected the question was both hostile and intentional. That is the kind of arrogance that you and I find in the human heart. This is the kind of arrogance that you and I find among those who describe themselves as agnostics and those who describe themselves as atheists. And they are so audacious and so bold in actually claiming that God does not exist. Edmond Chan, and I think I shared to you that we have been texting each other uh, every day for the past two months already. And the last text that he gave to me was really very insightful. And this is what he said, to be able to say that there is no God. You have to be able to claim as well that you know the entire universe. Only when you know the entire universe. And what are we talking about? We're talking about billions of galaxies that you and I have not even discovered at all. And for somebody to be able to say that God does not exist, he must know the entire universe, the billions of galaxies, and be able to say that I have searched in every nook and cranny of this universe, and I have discovered there is no God. But none among the atheists could possibly say that they know the universe. What they know about the universe is but a minute detail of the vastness of information that you can gather in the galaxies that you and I live in. These atheists do not even know the earth that we live in. And yet, in their arrogance, they claim that there is no God. 
The second inner disposition that we find here is they reject God's truth and they delude themselves by justifying their wrong attitudes and conduct. They reject truth. Now, truth is not hard to find. It is not found in the, the, the vast, you know, in the vastness of, of this universe. You don't have to search. All we need to do is go to the scriptures, go to the Bible, because the Bible actually reveals truth to us. It reveals truth about us. It reveals truth about God. It reveals truth about creation. It reveals truth about the human heart. Everything that we need, every question we have in our mind, every essential query that we have is found in the Bible. But in the arrogance of people, they have rejected God's truth. And instead, they would rather believe a lie. They would rather believe their own theories. They would rather believe what they think of, of man, of God, and of the universe, rather than submitting themselves to the truth of God. Again, allow me to quote Ravi Zacharias in his book. And this is what he says, the hallmark of the so-called new atheists is the anger and the ridicule that is hurled toward anyone's belief in the sacred. Many atheists would say, you need to respect my opinion. You need to respect what I think. And yet, when somebody talks about something that is divine, when somebody begins talking about spiritual things, the anger inside of them is boiling. They will tell you to respect their opinion, but they will not respect the opinion of those who believe in the existence of God. Herein we find the arrogance and the desire to actually suppress truth. And isn't that what we find in Romans chapter 1? That the evidence of God is, is there already insofar as creation is concerned. And we think about our own makeup. Our conscience tells us that there is a God. Our, our the, the, the circumstances by which we are surrounded with tells us that there is a God because there is order and there is harmony. Yeah, these people refuse to accept the plain truth about God. We are told in the book of Romans chapter 1 that they suppress the truth about God. Robert Morey in his book, The New Atheism and the Erosion of Freedom, tells us seven questions that atheists cannot answer and yet... And yet, they remain in the stubbornness of their unbelief. And those seven questions I'd like to put on the screen and read them to you. These are the questions that atheists cannot answer. First of all, they cannot answer the question, how did everything ultimately come from nothing? Where did we come from? They can't answer that question. They would rather believe in evolution. And I will show to you later on how stupid and how foolish for people to believe in the theory of evolution. Second question. Another question is, how did order come from chaos? Think about this. 
the planets revolving around the sun, the distance of earth to the sun, which is perfect. If we were very near to the sun, what do you think would happen to us? We would be singed. We would burn. We would not survive. If earth was farther away from the sun, we will also not survive. Why? Because of the coldness. We would freeze to death. And yet, people refuse to recognize the order that God Himself created. Third question, how did harmony come from discord? And we see that. There is order everywhere. There is harmony. And just taking a look at earth itself, all the things that we need to survive are there. There's water. There's oxygen. There's gravity. All of these things, what do you think they are there for? They are there for our existence. They are there for us to be able to survive. Where did that come from? Fourth question, how did life come from non-life? How did that happen at all? Doesn't that tell us that there is a supreme being who caused all of these things? We did not just come by accident. A greater being must have created us. And yet, they do not have an answer to this question. Fifth question, how did reason come from irrationality? As I speak right now, you're beginning to process what I am saying. You're probably thinking, well, that makes sense. And for some of you, you're probably doubtful. And for some of you, you're maybe trying to sort it out, trying to make sense of what I'm trying to say. But it only proves one point. It proves that we are thinking beings. And the question is, where did that come from? Where did that rationality come from? Where did that reasoning come from? How could we process thoughts? These are things that animals cannot do. I mean, you talk to a bunch of animals right here, and I talk about these things. Do you think that makes sense to them? It will not make sense to them. But it makes sense to you, or at least you're trying to make sense of it. So what does that tell you? We have reason. Sixth question. How did personality come from non-personality? You know, the interesting thing is we're all so different. It's not like we, we came from one assembly line and we all look alike. We all think alike. Everything about us is the same. No, there is, there is difference in personalities. There are differences in terms of responding and reacting to certain things. Where did that come from once again? Last question. How did morality come from amorality? Think about this. Man made in the image of God, we know that that has been stained, that has been marred, that has been soiled. Yet, you and I understand that we still have a sense of morality. It might be skewed, because of our perspective, the way, the way we've been raised up or the way we've been educated. But somehow there is this sense of what is right and what is wrong. Animals don't have that. They, they don't feel guilty about adultery, for example. They don't, they don't have problems with, uh, with other things that we human beings have problems with. And why is that so? Why are we so different from the animal kingdom? Most atheists, friends, and I would say all atheists rather, do not have answers to all these essential questions. 
And Rabbi Zacharias calls this, he calls this an answerless answer. When he talks about the way people think about evolution, because evolution actually has no scientific basis. And let me just show to you the foolishness of what evolutionists say, and I'm going to bring out a quote this time from uh, Stephen Gold, one of the evolutionists, and, and this is what he says. Listen well. We are here because of one odd group of fishes. That's how we came about. One odd group of fishes has a particular thin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available. So thank your lucky stars in a little, literal sense, because the earth never literally froze entirely during an ice age because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa, where in the world did he get that? A quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook, and we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This answer, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. And I'm thinking, what is so liberating about that? We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers ourselves from our own wisdom. An ethical sense, there is no other way. Ravi Zacharias was right when he said, this is an answerless answer. There are more questions that come out of statements like this. The question is, how can they be so sure? How can they be 100% sure that this is how we came about? Yet people... Because they reject God, believe a delusion. You know, what is so scientific is not evolution. What is scientific is the biblical creation account. That is scientific. If you go to the book of Genesis, what, the book, what does the book of Genesis say? Like begets like. We reproduce after our own kind. Cats produce cats. Dogs produce dogs. Butterflies produce butterflies. Human beings produce human beings. So why in the world should we believe that we came from apes? How many here believe that you came from King Kong? Raise your hands. But friends, that is what we are being educated with. That is what our teachers are telling us. And why do you think they are telling us that? Because they do not know any better. But at the bottom of it really is a rejection of the truth of God. Again, we do not have to speculate. 
We do not have to, to ride a rocket to go into the universe and find out about truth. The truth is already right before us in the Scriptures, in the Bible. All we need to do is read, and as we read, you and I will discover what truth is all about. Sadly, again, as I mentioned to you, people refuse the truth. The book of Job, for example, was written at the time when mostly, or most probably at the time that Abraham was existing. They were probably contemporaries. So the book of Job was actually written at a very early stage. And yet, interestingly, the book of Job tells us that the earth, listen well, the earth is a sphere. It's round. Now, where in the world did Job get that revelation? Job was not a scientist. He was the priest of his family. That's what he says. He was well-respected in his community, but he was not a scientist. But how in the world was he able to state that the earth is a spear? And how in the world was he also able to state that the earth hangs on nothing? Now, those truths are scientific. And friends, the question is, where did that come from? Obviously, a revelation from God. But herein is the root of all unwise conduct. The root of all unwise conduct comes from a wrong heart that is selfishly ambitious, a heart that is arrogant, a heart that rejects truth. And as a result of that, they do not arrive at the right things. They arrive always in the wrong things. And we also mentioned last time around that there is an external source that causes this unwise conduct. And this comes from rebel forces described to us as earthly, natural, and demonic in verse 15. We are told that this inspiration, or rather this attitude, is not inspired by God. Rather, it is inspired by the world, by our sinful nature, and by demonic forces. Make no mistake about it. Although we do not see demons sitting with us, they are there. They are there present, and they are there whispering thoughts to us, thoughts that are ungodly. Thoughts that do not align with the will of God. And again, they can cause us to be rebellious against the Lord. Now, there are serious consequences for unwise conduct. And this is what verse 16 says. The existence of jealousy and selfish ambition promotes disorder. Disorder in every evil thing. Think about this. Why are there massacres taking place all over the world? Why are there senseless, senseless killings taking place all over the world? Why are there kidnappings? Why is there cyber sex? Where do all these things come from? Again, Ravi Zacharias was spot on when he talked about another story. He says, very recently... A Russian business tycoon gave Stephen Hawking $100 million 
toward his endeavor to find extraterrestrial intelligence. $100 million to find if there's life outside of earth. Hawking has opined that it is critical for us to find them before they find us. Notice the paranoia for nothing, saying that if we don't find them before they find us, they could wipe out our existence. After the slaughters in San Bernardino, Belgium, Paris, the Boston Marathon, Turkey, Baghdad, Ontario, I'm sorry, Orlando, Dallas, and the list goes no endlessly. We want to get to other planets without fixing our own planet. And when you think about this, although I used examples from the secular world, James was really addressing believers. Or at least he was addressing professing believers. What he was really trying to say was this, as believers in God, as sons and daughters of God, we are supposed to conduct ourselves wisely. We are supposed to conduct ourselves in a manner that brings honor and glory to God. And yet, even as we claim to be sons and daughters, just like the world, we behave just like it. Arrogance is found in a church. Selfish ambition at times is found in the church. The inner disposition is wrong. And again, James challenges the church and he is saying, friends, we are Christians. We are believers. Those things that I described before you, he says, are things that you can expect from the world. But we don't expect them among believers. Well, Paul, likewise, in his letter to the church of Corinth, spoke about carnal believers. And it's actually an oxymoron because the word, the word carnal is actually used of unbelievers. And so why does Paul use an oxymoron? It was as if he was saying, you are unbelieving believers. There's a contradiction of terms. Yet sometimes, isn't there really a contradiction in the way we live? Isn't there a contradiction at times in the way we think? Isn't there a contradiction sometimes in the way we react and the way we respond? Aren't we people who are supposed to have the mind of Christ? Aren't we people who are supposed to have a renewed heart, a regenerated heart? Aren't we people who are armed and equipped with God's Word? And that being the case, we know exactly what to do in a particular situation. We know exactly how to respond and react in a proper way, in God-honoring ways. And James issues the challenge, why do we allow ourselves to walk in the manner of the world? But he ends this particular passage with a positive note, and he describes to us the way you and I are supposed to conduct ourselves. And so he speaks about the marks of the wise man. First, he talks about the internal and the external source, which is found in verse 17. Allow me to just read verse 17 at this time. It says, 
But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And so let's break this down. First of all, he says this wisdom, this godly wisdom, is from above. And what this is telling us is that God is the source and that God is both the internal and the external source. Why do I say that? Well, He's the external source because He's the God of heaven. And yet, He is able to provide and supply this wisdom to us. But this wisdom is not only from above or from outside or from God in heaven. This wisdom is also inside of us. And why is it inside of us? Because the third person in the blessed trinity lives and dwells inside of us. So if you're looking for wisdom, you don't have to look far. You just have to humble yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to provide you wisdom. And He will. Because Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And didn't John the Beloved also say that we do not have anyone, we do not need anyone to teach us because we have an anointing from the Holy Spirit? Now, what does that exactly mean? Does that mean we don't need pastors and teachers? Obviously not. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, God has gifted the church with certain men called apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers for the equipping of the church. So obviously, it doesn't mean that we do not listen to, to people whom God has called into the church. What, what John is simply saying is that because we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we can discern whether what is being spoken behind the pulpit is true or wrong or true or false. We can sense that tug in our hearts whether a person is really speaking out of truth and out of sincerity and not out of hypocrisy and falsehood. That is something that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. So the point really is this. We have no lame excuse for not living wisely, for not conducting our lives in a manner that honors and glorifies God. So here is the call, my dear brothers and sisters, that, that we conduct our, ourselves in a manner that glorifies and honors God because after all, we have been called the light of this world. And as the lights of this world, we are to let our good works shine before men. And as they see that, guess what is the result? They will glorify and honor the Father. And this is what we have attempted to do, and we are just so thankful to God for the opportunities that He has given to us. Just recently, just this week, Brother Bebs and Brother Jingle were able to go to the police station, and they did some lectures and testimonies among policemen. And we have actually been asked to do Bible study every day. And Brother Bevs and Brother Jingle just realized we can't do that every day. We don't have the personal, but we can promise you twice a week. And you ask, where did that come from? How did we have that opening? 
Well, because we, we uh, gave a buffet dinner for the police officials and some of the people from Pedea, and we honored them. And they were wondering why, why we were doing this for them, why we were giving them a buffet dinner. But it was just so we could share our faith. It was just so we could share Jesus and the Bible to them. They knew that as we spoke to them and as we fed them, that we did not have any hidden agenda. But it was coming from a heart of love and a heart of sincerity, a desire for their souls to be saved. And you know, when you conduct yourself in a manner that glorifies and honors God, doors just begin to open because people realize you're genuine. And people like genuineness. I also mentioned to you the fact that we will be hosting very soon a retreat among 3,000 students from a university. That's, that's history. That has never, ever happened in the history of the existence of the church here in Cebu. Not in our church, not in any other church. And again, where did that come from? A, continually, a continual sowing of seeds, a continual sowing of love, a continual sowing of goodness. This opening came about because we have one teacher there who is a guidance counselor who belongs to our outreach church in Cologne. And she has been sowing and sowing for the longest time. I met up with the principal together with the staff just last uh, Thursday, and they were excited. They said, thank you, they said, for, for accepting us. I said, thank you for making us um, people who will, who will hold or who will handle the retreat for you. It's, it's a privilege on our part to serve you, I said. And so again, these things happen because we are wise in the way we conduct ourselves. And again, we do not have to guess the mind of God. It's, it's written. So what is the inner disposition that makes us wise? Well, these are the attitudes that we need to have. First of all, purity. What, is puri what, what does purity mean? It speaks of sincere and godly motives and intentions. Sincere and godly motives and intentions. Sadly, when you go to Philippians chapter 1, we find that there were certain ministers who were actually competing with Paul. And Paul doesn't mince words. He says, these people have selfish ambition in their hearts, wanting to cause distress in my imprisonment. Their desire was self-promotion and self-exaltation. They had a hidden agenda. So it is possible to go about religious and spiritual activities and yet not have the right heart. It is possible to have a heart that does not desire to honor and glorify God, but to honor and glorify oneself. And friends, we cannot do that. We cannot promote ourselves, most especially in the church, because none of us died for the church. There was only one who died for the church, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Through His priceless blood, we have received redemption and atonement, and only He deserves all the glory, honor, and praise. He will not entertain any rivals. 
We have to give God the proper place in our hearts because sometimes we dethrone Him. On the outside, we appear all right. But deep down inside, there is something terribly wrong in our hearts. And friends, let me just tell you this. God will catch up with you and He will make you eat humble pie. If only for you to have a pure motive and a pure heart. Next is peaceableness. What's peaceableness? It's, it's a mindset that seeks peaceful resolutions to an issue. Now, this does not mean peace at any cost or compromising the purity of life and doctrine. This is not peace at any cost. But rather, it is peace. It is a peaceful mindset which, again, desires reconciliation. A lot of times when we get hurt, a lot of times when we suffer injustice, the natural reaction of our flesh is to fight back and to retaliate. Jesus Christ always does the opposite. I'm reminded of the betrayal of Jesus Christ by Judas. And yet, down to the very end, the Lord Jesus Christ did not change the way He treated Judas. In fact, when they celebrated the Lord's table, Jesus dipped the bread and gave it to Judas, which according to that culture was, was a sign of honoring somebody who was a guest. In other words, Jesus was saying to Judas, Judas, you're betraying me, and I know what you're about to do. You're going to betray me with a kiss. You're going to sell me for, for a cheap price of 30 pieces of silver. But you know what, Judas? I still love you. And I'm giving you, I'm dipping this bread, and I'm honoring you. That's the way of Jesus. Jesus hanging on the cross after having been beaten and flogged and crown of thorns on his head, nailed to the cross. He was bloody red. He was a red, bloody red mess. Blood was spilling everywhere. And yet Jesus Christ said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This attitude of peaceableness is also seen in King David before he became king, of course. He had two grand opportunities to slay his persecutor, King Saul, who was running after him and he was living in caves running from place to place, desert to desert. Yet David, at the time when he had the opportunity to slay his king, did not do so because he refused to touch the Lord's anointed. Such attitudes speak of wisdom. Next is gentleness. It means not pugnacious or quarrelsome. It's interesting how some people pride themselves for being short-tempered or having a short fuse, and that, you know, that somehow uh, makes other people feel that they're strong and, and that they're not intimidated by anybody. They feel that it's really a sign of superiority. But then again, friends, the Bible calls us to gentleness. To be sure, there are temptations to be pugnacious and to be quarrelsome. 
most especially if you have suffered injustice and unfair treatment. Yes, of course, the temptations are there. And yet we have to remind ourselves of our Savior because He has saved us that we might be conformed to His likeness. Jesus says that if we're hit on one cheek, we need to turn the other one as well. That is the philosophy of Jesus Christ. It is contrary to the world's thinking. But you see, how did Jesus conquer this world? Jesus did not conquer this world by a mighty and powerful army. Jesus did not call upon the host of angels to achieve a mighty victory. He could have done that. You know how Jesus achieved victory? Jesus achieved victory through His death. It was in His dying that He provided redemption. It was in His dying that He paid for the sins of the world. It was in His death that we now have the hope of resurrection. And it was through His death that you and I have this blessed assurance of eternal life. Our names written in the book of life. That is how Jesus won. And may I add, that's how we win. We win by dying to ourselves and allowing the life, the resurrection life of God to be lived in us and through us. There lies the victory for every issue of challenge, for every crisis in our lives. There lies the power. The power for a victorious life comes because we die to ourselves. Next is reasonableness, otherwise translated as submissiveness. Submission is not a very popular word. It's not popular with people who hate the government. It is not popular with wives who are discontent with their husbands. The word submission is not popular among those in church who are discontent but are called upon to submit to their leaders. Submission is not a favorite word for people who desire to be preeminent. But the call of the Scriptures is always about submission. The Holy Spirit submits Himself to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ Himself submitted Himself to God the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you and I know the famous words, not my will, but thy will be done. And you know what? As I meditated on the book of Hebrews, I was, I was even greatly blessed because even before the Garden of Gethsemane and even before Jesus became God incarnate, He had already volunteered. In the book of Hebrews, He said, You, He was referring to God the Father, You have prepared a body for Me. And it is written in the book of Hebrews that the Lord Jesus Christ would reply to God the Father by saying, I have come to do Thy will. 
If there's something we need to remember about submission, submission is not to be under domination, but it is to be under protection. If we move out of the area of submission, what protection do you and I have? Absolutely nothing. It is only when we submit ourselves to the perfect plan and will of God that we are safe and we are protected and we are preserved. And that's why, friends, the call for us is submission and it's not optional at all. Next is mercifulness. A desire to extend help even to the undeserving. And sometimes we get to be harsh with some people and we don't want to extend any help because we think, well, these people are not deserving at all. Well, let me ask you this question. Who is deserving? When we think about things from God's perspective, who is deserving? I'm not deserving. I'm sure you're not deserving as well. We are all undeserving sinners. So if we're going to talk about deserving receiving certain things, none of us actually deserve. And yet, the Bible says in James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Even though we are undeserving, we continually are recipients and beneficiaries of God's manifold grace and favor. Blessing upon blessing takes place in our lives. And it's not just the righteous who get blessed. We are, told, we are told in the book of Matthew that God makes the, the rain to fall both on the righteous and the unrighteous. He makes the sun to shine upon both the righteous and the unrighteous. That is the God that we serve, the God of all mercies. And therefore, if we are to be Christ-like, we are to extend mercy even to those who do not deserve it. Next is good fruits, which could mean gracious or generous. Are you gracious? Are you generous? We have to be. Why? Because we receive grace. And you see, the only proper response to being a recipient of grace is to be gracious. It is to be generous. It is to be loving. It is to be forgiving. It is to be reconciling. It is to seek restoration. It is to help those who are weak and uphold them and strengthen them. That's why, friends, if you really think about wisdom, what is it all about? It's not about grabbing. It's not about us. Looking at this list that James gives to us, what do you think it's all about? It's all about selflessness. It's all about giving. It's all about sharing. It's never about us. It is always about God and others. And basically, that's what the two commandments are all about. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbors as yourself. That's wisdom. That's what James is really trying to say here is just basically breaking it down for us. And he's saying, this is how it looks like. 
You want to love your neighbor? You want to love God? This is how it looks like. These are the things that come out. Next is unwavering, which is otherwise translated as impartiality. And James was big on this. He says, I'm not telling you not to treat rich people well. I'm saying to you, James is saying, that you treat the poor people in the same way that you treat rich people. If you treat rich people special, then you've got to treat poor people as special as well. That's the rule of the kingdom. When, uh, when Paul was speaking to the apostles about his ministry to the Gentiles, he was reminded of one very important thing that Peter and all the rest of the apostles did not want him to neglect. The apostle said, do not forget the poor. Remember the poor. And Paul said, I was just so glad. This is, he was just so glad to be able to serve them as well. Next on the list is sincerity, which means to seek to bless without any hidden agenda. It's a cliche to be able to say, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine as well. And basically, that's how the world operates. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I give you something, you give me something in return. I'm going to love you if you love me back in return. Well, what if you love, and instead of love, what you receive is hatred? What if you could give, but you could not receive anything in return? What if there is absolutely no benefit in you extending grace and mercy to others? Would you still do good? We should. Because that is who our Lord, Savior, and Master is. He had no hidden agenda. You might say, well, didn't He die on the cross that He might be glorified? Friends, let me just tell you this. The cross did not add glory to God. God without the cross is already glorious. There is nothing you and I can ever do to add to the glory of God. There is nothing you and I can do to add to the glory of Jesus Christ. And yet, listen well. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He tasted death for each and every one of us. No hidden agenda. It's all about love. An anonymous author had written these words, and I quote, when we can say we are not jealous or made uneasy by the success or the superior excellence of another, but rather rejoice to hear him praised, our love is perfected in this particular, for love envies not. When we can say that we have no desire for display or vain glory, no inclination to unduly push ourselves forward, then our lives conform to God's pattern, for love vaunted not itself. When we have a modest opinion of our abilities, 
and achievements and can remain completely humble when praised. We are pleasing to the Lord, for love is not puffed up at all and would not willingly be a stumbling block or hurt anyone's feelings. We are conforming to the truth that love does not behave itself unseemly. When we make decisions, if our primary concern is to please the master and help others rather than advance our own selfish interests, then in particular, we have attained spiritual maturity. For love seeketh not her own. When one trial after another comes and we do not complain, but rather bear it patiently, then we are truly overcomers in the Lord's eyes. For love endureth all things. I would like to add that a person who has these attitudes, this inner disposition, is not only perfected in love, but he is also indeed a man or a woman of wisdom. And finally, what this causes is a wonderful result. And what is the wonderful result? Let's look at verse 18 at this time. It says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness, that's the result, is sown in peace by those who make peace. Righteousness is a product of peace which is made by peacemakers. One of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are what? The peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's what you and I need to be. Jesus came into this world to create peace. And you might say, why? Because we were at war with God. Our rebellion made us at war with God. Yet Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, for what reason? That He might reconcile you and I to the Father. That's why Romans chapter 5 says we have peace with God. And because that is who our Savior is, we have to learn how to be peacemakers, not troublemakers, but peacemakers. And when you sow peace to others, people will, will respond back in peace and love. I'd like to close by saying wise conduct is what we need, not just in the church, but in our country as well. And I thank God for the blessed opportunities that He has been giving to us among the policemen, among these students. I mean, I'm just blown away by the doors that God has been opening. It's really unbelievable. And we must not waste these opportunities Remember this, what this country needs is wisdom, not intelligence. We have a lot of educated thieves. You and I know that. What's the difference between the Akyat Bahai Gang and those educated thieves? Not much. Maybe there is a big difference. The educated thieves get more. It's not about intelligence. It's about wisdom.
And wisdom you can only get from God and from the Scriptures. Allow me to end by citing to you what Andrei Boluch said. After Hitler visited Paris in 1940, Andrei Boluch, a courageous member of the French resistance, penned a letter to his father. Listen. The country can only be saved by a moral resurrection. Something that will require the work of all men of goodwill. This is what I'm fighting for. A moral resurrection. Not only in the church, but in our country. This is what you and I need. And we need to man up to the task that God has given to us. Because friends, this responsibility that God has given to us is a treasure. And it is a treasure that we do not keep to ourselves, but it is a treasure that we share to others. The only hope of this world and of this country is Christ. The only hope is the Bible. This is the only thing that will change this country. And sadly, sometimes we don't see it. And I pray, brethren, that as James has shared to us the, the inner disposition and the source of wisdom that you and I will begin to behave and conduct ourselves in a manner that is wise, in a manner that is God-honoring and God-glorifying. And friends, let me just tell you, when we do that, it's going to change the face of this country. Amen? We need Jesus, and we need His wisdom. Amen? Let's live wisely. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask for forgiveness. Times, Lord, we have forgotten who we are, that we are blood-bought sinners. That we no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to you. Sometimes we have forgotten it is no longer about us, but it is all about you. It's not about our agenda. It's not about our aspirations and our dreams, but your dreams and your aspirations and your will, O oh God. And we ask, O oh God, that in your grace... might move upon our hearts, oh God. Make us see Jesus.
this is so good. Because you mean everything to us. There is no one like you. There is no one as beautiful as you. There is no one as great as you. Open our eyes, oh God, that we may see. Open our hearts, oh God, that we might feel your heartbeat. We pray for revival. <laughs> Bring revival, oh God, upon us in our country. Change us, oh God. And make us like you. You're so good. You're so giving. You're so loving. And Lord, even in our unfaithfulness, you are so faithful. God, for we are weak and we are frail. Holy Spirit, just move. Only you can change us. Nothing of us can change us. Only you can make a difference, Lord. And so we pray, Father, that your grace will just be poured out. Let the fire just burn in our hearts, oh God. Let your passion just move upon us. Help us, oh God. Thank you for this morning, oh God. Thank you for your visitation. Thank you also for the opportunity that we could give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name.